The more I pushed that moral line, that's the stuff that made me feel the worst, to be honest. Stealing shit from my family, jumping in the window when they'd like kick me out of the house. That's Jack Nagel. He's a nice middle-class kid from a supportive, loving family, not the background befitting the stereotype of the kind of person who destroys their lives on drugs. But that didn't matter. When I was 14, smoking a joint at the skate park, nobody ever thinks in five years time or whatever it is, I'm gonna be in a public toilet using IV like methamphetamine. Jack ended his teens and started his 20s as the most hardcore drug addict imaginable. And the fact he's lived to tell the tale defies all probability. Just super desperate. And I actually stole a whole bunch of money, about seven and a half grand. And I spent it all in a week in an ice bender and all this crazy shit happened. Shooting up ice and heroin and swallowing fistfuls of prescription pills, he was brought back to life by paramedics after dealers left him to die of an overdose, only to go straight back to those same people for more drugs after checking out of hospital. They found me in the morning, foaming at the mouth, choking on my vomit and all that stuff, and they left me in the alley. And then I was just super lucky, someone walking past saw me and called the ambulance. He was as hopeless as hopeless gets, but there's always hope. Not in a fantastical, too good to be true kind of way, but the kind of hope that manifests into a rich, rewarding life that most in the grip of addiction would think impossible. But it's not impossible. Jack's 10 years clean and running drug education and media business, Real Drug Talk, being the person he really needed when he thought he was beyond help. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just wanna say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. This episode is sponsored by Bolton Brothers, the guys dedicated to changing the face of men's mental health, and Ski for Life, the organization promoting mental health and suicide prevention through their annual ski relay in South Australia. Check out their websites and follow them on socials. Jack, how were you introduced to drugs in the first place? It's a good question, actually. I was just really kind of, I reckon, the pretty stereotypical way that um, most people uh, like as kind of a, a young person are um, just like socially with mates. So I was always really into sport, um, mainly basketball, and I was playing that all the time. You're six um, five, right? Yeah, six five. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So mum gave me the good broccoli when I was a kid. So you might have had a bit of future there, but you messed that up. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, it's it's always embarrassing to say um, because you know you don't want to be one of those older guys saying, oh, I could have been, but you know, like I definitely was in the mix and kind of had some opportunities at my feet. Oh, bro. Sort of you are stuff. so one of those old guys, man. <laughs> Hang your head in shame. That's right. That's right. So, so you started out smoking weed as the classic gateway drug. Was that the same for you? Pretty much, mate. Like the, whenever I got a chance to kind of get out of, um, out of basketball or there wasn't a game on or whatever, cause I used to play uh, seven days a week or train or whatever. So um, yeah, it was Easter Monday. I can still remember it. Um, and all my mates that I grew up with started to kind of muck around um, and were out behind uh, Chadston, which is the big uh, big shopping center in Melbourne, Chadston Shopping Center Skate Park. 
And yeah, I had my uh, first joint. I was always terrified every time I did a different drug. As soon as I did it, I just loved it. Uh, so yeah, it's a uh, can remember it. And from that, I was kind of hooked. And and that's like one of the main messages I always tell people is that that you know the pe- the reason why people do drugs is because yeah, it feels fucking good. That's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's why I did it again and again and again. And how old were you then? I was. Um, Oh, good question. I think I was uh, 14 or 13, 14. Yeah. 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 And I'm sure you probably find through your work that that's a fairly typical age for people to start experimenting with that. That was the same for me. I think I was in year eight when I first smoked weed and then that became a somewhat regular thing. And for me, that came from hanging out with some guys from another school who I knew through basketball who were a bit older than me and a, a bit rougher and a bit cooler than me. And I was a private school boy that thought that that was all pretty dangerous, but I thought, <laughs> thought I was pretty cool as well. So, Yeah, well, well, that's the thing. Like um, we got it off uh, one of my mate's brother, you know, who was like I think 18 at the time yeah. um, and, you know, listening to like Biggie Smalls thinking they were gangsters yeah, or whatever. Thinking so. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> but really we were from the from the nicest suburbs in, in <laughs> Melbourne probably, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, had the same, man. <laughs> Playing basketball, man, because those things, are they are intertwined, the cultural aspects of the, the hip-hop and the basketball and then the weed that comes with that and uh, – you're a white boy all along who's <laughs> from, right. from a nice neighborhood, but you are at that point of development. I suppose you're looking for identity and you're looking to test the boundaries a bit and find out a bit about who you are and a bit of perhaps some male posturing as well as yep. to, you know, trying to make yourself appear to be cool. And yeah, it's just what, just what can happen. Mate, a hundred percent. And it's funny that you bring that up because I, I think, you know, now that I'm in the industry of helping people and stuff, all of that real conversation gets lost. And that was a massive part of it for me, you know, like was the whole kind of culture, identity, trying to find my way, um, you know, and you kind of get sucked into the culture a little bit, you know, so it was like graffiti, like skateboarding. Yeah, that real um, urban sort of thing. That's right. That's and I right. guess there's there's parallels with certain drugs and certain cultures and that they are a byproduct or they go hand in hand with certain cultures. And it's like, if you like one part of that culture, it means it's pretty likely that you're going to get involved with the drugs that are associated with that culture as well, because it sort of makes it all make sense. And we can see examples of that all over the place. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, it, it's, it's just like, it's just around and, and that's the truth, you know, like um, drugs and alcohol, uh, are around um, and <laughs> yeah. and most people like I can't remember the exact stats but it's like very high um, most people you know try or do drugs in some way um, in in their early stages of life or some some stage throughout their lives you know so it is actually a common thing just despite what some people might have your belief <laughs> mm. and what do you get from smoking weed that you liked so that so that's the thing, right? That's really interesting. Um, I didn't know this at the time. It's all in hindsight. But the thing about me that when I was when I was younger, I definitely I definitely smoked weed and did other drugs at the start of my journey um, to kind of yeah, like we we're just talking about, have an identity, fit in, have fun, you know, a party, all that sort of stuff. But there was this other aspect going on underneath the surface. And if I think back to me when I was growing up, I've got no idea why. I guess you'd probably call it anxiety. Um, But I can always remember not being comfortable in my own skin, wanting to be kind of someone else, you know, even though I had like cool things in my life, I was popular, I had friends, things like that. 
I never kind of felt sure of myself. I was always trying to be other people. Like funny story, I, I was really good mates with this guy. Um, his name was Jack as well, but he was um, a Kiwi, a Maori guy, right? And like his family was really cool. And I remember like, you know, really almost like turning into a chameleon and wanting to be like New Zealand and be in that culture and talking like that and stuff, you know? I was yeah. so, I was so like kind of desperate to to just feel okay because I obviously didn't. Um, yeah, so you I weren't think, weren't comfortable with yourself and you were looking for identities based on elements that you thought were cool and things that other people did that perhaps you'd like to emulate and adopt, but it was all based around you having a pretty shaky understanding of who you were as most teenagers do. A hundred percent. And that played out all through my, um, you know, drug drug using career, if you want to call it that, but you know, <laughs> illustrious like, career. That's right. That's right. I um like so one of the things I always struggled with, which you know people think's funny, but this is what goes on for a lot of people that do fall into addiction or mental health issues or whatever it is. Is like I was like a super nice guy, um, and like I'm pretty like soft and sensitive, just kind of naturally, mm. um, and that didn't kind of gel well in that world, you know. And yeah. I I found it really hard, and and that's what drugs and alcohol did for me as well was that they just kind of numbed me out and allowed me to be the person who I thought I needed to be or wanted to be, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was interesting. And who did you feel like you needed to be? I don't know, like I, I like I Ice just, Cube or something, like yeah, Arr. like. I, <laughs> It's funny, you know, like I definitely had all that going on. I, I was super into hip hop, you know, all that stuff. It was quite uh, hilarious when I look back on it. But um, Had the I baggy just, pants like, and the da-da. That's right. Yep. That's right. I think, um, I think, you know, a big thing for me was that I was just like uh, really searching for, um, you know, that kind of male role models, I suppose. And unfortunately for me, um, you know, I kind of just, as we talked about, fell into that culture and decided that, you know, that was a good way to kind of keep me safe. Again, I wasn't like consciously thinking that, but mm -hmm. trying to kind of portray that, that tough guy sort of thing. And I wasn't at all. And what actually, what actually ended up happening was that I started being real funny. Um, and my mates would say, you're a, you're a banana. You weren't that funny, but I, I would, I would kind of befriend, befriend people and be funny and kind of, I found myself hanging around. Yeah. Like just, people from a completely different walk of life to me, getting in, you know, all sorts of trouble. Um, and, and, and did that they was my see way you, to keep other people away from me. Did you know? they see you as that funny guy, like rat bag, that became your identity? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And then that fed into like kind of my drug use was that I kind of became the fucked up guy um, yep. and the guy that would get fucked and do funny things or mm -hmm. say funny things. Um, and know, one, once, sort of once you're that guy, then you got to keep that up because then otherwise, <laughs> who are you? And you don't meet the expectations. Does that mean that you stop being friends with these people or you stop having a sense of self-worth, even if it's based on something as shit as that? That's, that's right. something that's considered. Well, and, and, then, and then, you know, what kind of happened was that the more that my drug use kind of intensified and addiction intensified and mental health intensified, it all just kind of got lost and I just turned into that real stereotype, you know, desperate and, you know, hunting and searching and all that sort of stuff for drugs and, mm. and doing shitty things, you know. So, yeah. How quickly did you go from weed to harder drugs? Uh, like, yeah, I guess pretty quick. Like, I don't know. It's funny because when I look back on it, you know, like some of the people I, you, you're never as bad or you're never as kind of, um, uh, or you're worse than a lot of other people. So it's always hard to know. 
where you're at, but it was pretty quick. I, I um, instantly, I kind of started hanging around different people in that culture. And then I found other people that kind of use drugs the way I wanted to use drugs, like experiment with stuff. So, you know, I remember like just a real natural progression, taking ecstasy, mm-hmm. um, doing that for a couple of weeks, then tried like speed and stuff like that. And then kind of got hooked into that. And then, you know, six months later, nothing was really going wrong in my life, but I had an addiction to it. Um, you know, and then six months later I tried, um, ice and, you know, basically that was kind of, I, at that stage I could pay like 50, 50 to a hundred bucks and get like a tiny amount compared to the speed, but, um, use like a lot lot less and it would last a lot longer and all that sort of jazz so that's kind of how that started for me mm. um but you get and, a you get a point for 50 bucks or 100 bucks and you do that but then that would work initially and send you for 12 hours and you probably thought oh wow this is unbelievable i was going to keep doing this and this amount but would have been not long before doing a point didn't do a lot for you exactly how it happened exactly how it happened um yeah and it's a slightly different it's the same, but it's a slightly different kind of euphoria as well in terms of like intensity. And and you're right, it kind of turned on its heels. Um, and before you before you know it, I was having to get more and more and more to kind of feel the same effects. And um, you know, by that stage, it was just all all a mess. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, but I, I I did manage to go a little bit, like just kind of partying and using other drugs and stuff. But you know, once I sort of got to 17 or 18 it's all a bit blurry to be honest but once i got to 17 18 that's when things just kind of hit the skids mm. for me and yeah it started to go wrong that it is young it is what so many people can relate to and so many people do hit it like that that young but it is that is young and especially yeah. you must see it like that now to have reached the heights of your addiction at like 20 and to have been hitting real hard drugs in your late teens is pretty hectic and it's, it's it's brings so much to your life and so much intensity and drama and I suppose complication and danger at such a young age when you really don't know anything about yourself or how to be in the world or really much at all. And then you add in the complication of getting psychologically and physically addicted to the most intense substances known to man. It's like it's as full on as it gets really. A hundred percent. And but the the interesting thing about it and the thing that I've learned um from that experience and you know working with other people is that humans just get used to stuff, yeah. you know. And it was crazy at the start, but then it just kind of became my new normal really and fast. I think that's something <laughs> that's probably most interesting to people who haven't used drugs or have only used the vanilla of drugs that if you take a step back and years later or objectively you're like, what that person's doing is fucking crazy. But if you're in it and the people around you are doing it, it just becomes normalized so fast to the point that you really don't think it's that crazy unless you are to throw in some new drug or you're taking it to an extreme extent, even for that circle. It's just like, oh, that's just what we do. Um, and I've I've had a similar experience to that because I was a habitual MDMA user for years when I was at uni um, doing pills most weekends with people who did that and thinking initially like, holy shit, this is the craziest thing ever. I really think it's fun. I'm going to keep doing it with 
pretty much zero self-awareness at that point in my life. So it was easy to do that stuff. Not yep. so much now. Then getting into that scene and doing that and having the people that I was hanging out with in, the, in that scene doing that as well to the point where, well, we're not going to go out and not do drugs. That's just like, that's never happening. You do one pill your first time and have some crazy experience on it. You're like, this is the most wild thing I've ever done. And two, yep. being someone who will go out and with a mate or two happily go through a 10 pack and not blink twice to becoming someone who wasn't me in my personal experience, but I had people that I knocked around with who would basically brag about how many pills they could take in a night. And someone would come up to you and say, oh, you know, I've had 15 pills tonight. And <laughs> that's just completely insane. Like even at that time, I was like, oh, okay, obviously that's like way over the edge. But when you're within that scene, you're like, yeah, I can see how that's still possible when you're not dead. And I'm not that freaked out by that. But then afterwards, 100%. you think back to your own behavior and that of others you saw around you, which you were just like, that's what everyone does. Everyone's on pills. Everyone's on drugs. Everyone's on amphetamines. That's just what it is. It's not that dangerous or that bad. It's just that's what young people do. Really, it was probably like 5% or 10% of young people. But because you're in that culture, you're like, yeah, it's everyone. And there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. If you're lucky enough to make it through those periods and look back at it, you're like, Oh, actually, yeah, that was that was some really reckless and super dangerous behavior. But as for, oh, how could you possibly do that? How did you not think that that was going to kill you? You just think you're invincible. And the more drugs you do, the more you think nothing's going to touch you. And you're like, well, I did, I did something similar to this last time and I was fine. So doing it again is going to be fine and doing a bit more is going to be fine. And if you have that gradual progression, it's just like the next thing. That's right. That's right. And that's why when I got into treatment, um, the thing that kind of turned it for me was meeting someone, I guess, a little bit like me or you are now, where they'd been through the experience and come out the other side. Um, and they had a completely different story to me, but them being able to intimately describe to me how they were thinking and feeling it was enough to kind of give me that psychological and emotional shift that just kind of woke me up and, and realized that Maybe it wasn't normal what I was doing and I could li live differently and people did think and feel like I did because there's all this stuff going on internally when you're in the middle of addiction and you have mental health issues going on and stuff that you don't, <laughs> you, you think you're the only one. You don't, because like people, well, it's, it's changing now with this, that's why this podcast is so important. But yeah, you, you, don't, you don't hear people kind of describe what, what their internal experience is like. And yeah, you, you think you're the only one or at least I did as well. So you know, um, exactly like w what you said. That's why it's just so important to have those people out there kind of advocating, talking about it, um, being in the frontline services to, to help people have that kind of wake up and snap them out of that normal habitual routine um, that they get stuck in. When you heard those kind of stories back then about people who had fallen into addiction or beat it and you were 17, 18, 19, how did you used to respond to that? Did you think that you were too smart for that or that you were built differently? I, so I'd never, um, and I just, it just wasn't on my radar. I'd never met anyone um, that had like kind of changed their life um, through addiction. You know, we, we kind of had some older crew around us. Um, and then we had, you know, like my mates and stuff who were starting to go to detoxes and, and rehabs and stuff. And they would always just kind of fall back into it. Um, and, and that was the massive thing for me. Um, and that's what I'm really passionate about now in the, in the alcohol and drug sector. And it's slowly getting there. Mental health is a little bit further ahead, but 
when I I was lucky enough that I could ac- finally found a service and access the service where they had those people with lived experience that were also um, counselors and stuff. And when I met mm. that person, I was like blown away. It, I, I can still remember it to this day. It literally blew my mind. Do you <laughs> I've think, never heard anyone talk about like that Do you think the message has to come from people with lived experience in that scenario? Yeah, I do actually. I do like, and it's not, you know, um, it's not discrediting like clinicians and stuff like that. But, you know, if you think about like the change process to someone, uh, for someone, you know, like the, the first initial phase of that is kind of identification and awareness. Um, and it's not like people with lived experience are going to be the silver bullet to change everything, but they open up the, the door um, for people to trust, you know, and the example that I give to everyone, and, and this is why it's so important that it progresses, but, you know, is that if there's like a um, Aboriginal and Indigenous service and you have to go out to a remote community, you don't send a white guy, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you send someone that understands the culture and that people, you know, are going to have a better chance of relating to and all that sort of stuff. And then maybe some other influences will come in, but, you know, it's it's so important to have people to be able to connect and trust at that initial contact. And yeah. just the fact of being an addict and then working with a recovering addict who's in a much better place and seeing in the flesh like, oh, it's actually possible, not just the clinician saying to you, technically, if you do this, this, and this, you can live a somewhat normal life. And you're like, I'm fucked right now. There's no way that I can do that. But if, you, if you're talking to someone who's like, mate, I was like you and there is a way forward and it can get better, then you know that that is actually real. A hundred percent. I remember the guy, the counsellor. So he had a completely different story to me. He was a mainly kind of a drinker, slightly older, had kids. His kind of rock bottom blow up experience was was way different to mine. But I remember he said to me, like, you know, do you like constantly mull over things in your head? And are you always like thinking about what other people are thinking about you? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, like, do you, does this happen internally? And when he started explaining all of that, I was like, whoa, you know what I mean? It just, it blew me away. He's like, when you use drugs, can you just like not get it out of your head? Just goes around like a machine gun on a loop. And I was like, you're wow. like, yes, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then what that actually did was that, that because he was able to do that, that just like made me go, all right, this guy can help me. So then when he did recommend me to other services or psychologists or other counselors that didn't have that lived experience, I trusted him because, um, you know, this guy had kind of recommended them and, and sort of like vouched for him, you know? Um, yeah. So, so yeah. And, that, and that's kind of how I see it works for like most people um, that, that I've met that have shifted and turned their life around out of addictive patterns. They always say at some point in the journey, someone with a lived experience was super like helpful for them. You know, there's always outliers yeah. and people that, that don't have that experience, but the far majority that I've spoken to definitely do. Gets yeah. the wheels turning, makes people see it in a different light and then plants the seed for them to take the next step from there. A hundred percent. So as I said, I was a habitual recreational drug user, but I've never been a drug addict. Can you yep. explain what the difference is? Because one thing that I hear thrown around sometimes is if someone's using drugs in a way that's not addic- in a, not an addiction, people who don't know much about drugs will say, oh, you're addicted to drugs or you're a drug addict for someone who smokes weed every yep. now and then. Yep. Um, so 
what is the difference between someone who uh, uses drugs recreationally or is a habitual user of drugs and someone who has a drug addiction? Mate, it's a great question. Um, and it's really interesting, right? Um, if I could just do the quick background, because it's it's there is a little bit, bit of complexity. But when I went to treatment, the place that I went to, right, believed in this kind of um, theory, which comes from AA and it's kind of old school. It's called the disease of addiction, right? Which basically states that once you're like an uh, addict, that you're going to be an addict forever. Yeah. Um, that you're always some- in recovery. That's right. That's right. Even if you're clean and sober, that you're like an addict and your disease is doing push-ups in the background. And if you use again, probably going to end up the same way, right? Yeah. So I came into that. And parts of that actually for the state that I was in, to be honest, was helpful because it allowed me to see it as like a medical um, condition and, and that it wasn't me doing all these things. And it was really helpful for me to move forward, right? But as I got further down the line um, and kind of got my brain back, um, started doing a lot of reading, meeting different people, researchers, people that had been worse than me in their addiction and actually gone back to like socially drinking, you know, all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I started to go, well, is this actually real? And, and I discovered that um, the evidence is really inconclusive and no one actually 100% knows, like say if you take diabetes, the whole medical fraternity agrees that you know, this is what happens with the insulin and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's what constitutes diabetes, right? It's not mm. like that in addiction. It's inconclusive, It's right? a bit more hearsay. That's right. That's right. So, so that was like super interesting to me as I went along in my journey and like really freeing. And the thing that I've kind of discovered about addiction, which all people will say to you if they, if they feel like they have an addiction issue, is that they will say, it's not so much about the drugs, it's about all the underlying psychological and emotional issues and negative ingrained behavioral patterns and, you know, all the stuff that I'm taking, the drugs or the substances to get away from that. Yeah, and, it's a symptom. It's, that's right. It's a symptom. And, and people kind of say the same thing, like with gambling or food or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so the solution to that is I always say to people, yes, you probably have to acknowledge that you've passed the magical red line. Um, and that you need to stop for a period of time. But the reason for that is to give yourself a blank canvas to then actually get a good look at what's going on underneath the surface, work through that, sort out that stuff. Um, and then if you want to, like you, you might be able to go back and, and, you know, drink socially again or do whatever you want to do. But it's more about kind of focusing on, you know, the, the stuff that's going on underneath the surface. So my definition that I give to people, because that's really subjective, right, is that if you find that it's like negatively impacting your life um, and, you know, it's having negative consequences and despite that happening, you can't seem to stop that behaviour, then maybe it's time to kind of acknowledge that an addictive pattern has formed or an addiction has formed and you need to get some help for that. But that doesn't mean that you're stuck in that addictive framework forever. It just means that you got some stuff to kind of work through because an addiction doesn't necessarily have to be an every single day thing or Mm. a you use ice thing. It's yep. just how it's impacting your life, you know. So that's how I describe it to people. Sorry, it was a bit of a long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> is it fair to say it's going from a I like doing whatever it is or I do whatever it is regularly to I need to do whatever it is? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I need to do whatever it is to feel okay. 
and survive in the world, mm-hmm. 100%. Um, and unfortunately, unfortunately for a lot of people, because of the nature of what happens when you get kind of stuck in that cycle of substances, it usually that kind of doesn't become apparent to you until something bad happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yep. you kind of go, oh, shit, I need to stop. And then you're struggling to and, and you know. And Something then, really bad. I mean, humans, that's right. humans are all the same. We can be told about it all we like and that's useful in some ways, but sometimes it takes us tipping over the edge and having that experience firsthand before we go, oh, okay, that's real. Just like us as a society doesn't want to act on, for example, climate change until it's like we really have to do it. That's just sort of <laughs> that's just sort of how humans go. It's like, well, sh- right. show me the evidence. Like it's nice to talk about it, but like I don't really believe you until it happens to me. That's, that's unfortunately right. how it can be. But that's not to say that there isn't a lot of merit in having people who have been there talk about it, uh, especially to those who might be going through it themselves because you can have a significant impact on planting a seed that stops someone going down that road or perhaps shows them how to do it more safely or gives them information that they weren't aware of that has a better result than what they would have otherwise. But we're stubborn. That's right. That's right. And and so and the hard thing is, right, is because there's an individual experience, but then there's also kind of a collective messaging or or public health kind of approach that has to go uh, at the problem to help the masses. And I think like how we need to start thinking about alcohol and drug use and mental health as well is like how we think about physical health, you know? Yeah. Like, so so if you if you go outside today in Melbourne, it's pissing with rain without a jumper on and hang out there for like half an hour, you're probably going to catch a cold, right? <laughs> um, so it's the same with like mental health and, and drug and alcohol use because it's not so much about the substance because there's heaps of people in the world that use all different sorts of substances and don't form an addiction like mm. you kind of explained. But maybe if you've just had a fight with your husband or your wife or your partner, or maybe if you've like just kind of had a really stressful week at work, or maybe if you've lost your job and you're experiencing financial challenges or whatever it is, maybe it's suggested that you don't have a, a drink or a drug that weekend because that's kind of the breeding ground yeah. that potentially can form because that pattern. that's forming the connection of this is how you cope with that and Correct. that's inevitably going to keep cropping up again and again and the fact is that dealing with life when it gets difficult without any of those crutches or vices is bloody hard to do and that's yeah. why so many of us lean into one thing or another that can go down the road of becoming out of control because life's not going to stop coming at you and if you don't develop really healthy coping mechanisms and stay really on top of it and be disciplined, we can all fall victim to it. And I suppose that's, that's the other part of the addiction conversation and the drug addiction conversation in particular is uh, for people who perhaps don't understand how someone can end up being a drug addict or look down their nose at them and say, that would never be me. This person just couldn't be bothered with life, didn't put the effort in, is a weak minded that's couldn't be further from the truth we're all only a few things happening in our life away and a few coping mechanisms or a few decisions away from that becoming us and i think a lot of people don't understand how fortunate they are and also how close they could be to being that person that they're looking at saying how did you get yourself in this situation that's right. And so when I was when I was 14 smoking a joint 
at the skate park. Nobody ever thinks in five years' time or whatever it is, I'm going to be in a public toilet using IV like methamphetamine. You know what I mean? And no one, no one, no one sets out to be an addict. There's not, no one right. ever thinks that being a drug addict is cool. That's never been cool. That's right. Or, That's right. or desirable. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, and, and, you know, like if you look at the stats, like I kind of fall into the 1% of like extremities in the population with drug using behavior and all that sort of stuff, right? But it is like a spectrum. And like you said, it, it, it can, like it can happen to everyone because it is based on a lot of different factors. And you just have to kind of be honest with yourself and assess where you are on the spectrum at, the, at any given moment. Um, and, and yeah, chop yourself out and give yourself a break and maybe take a rest. <laughs> Get some sleep if you can. That's right. What made ice a different ball game? I think, um, I think uh, like I always say, what comes up must come down, right? So you kind of get stuck in that cycle. So the, the high is so high um, that the low is so low. And then that just kind of breeds that negative cycle because you can't be feeling that low. Um, mm. So you've got to always try and be up. Because um, the, the low is unbearable. And I suppose unbearable. the more that you do that drug and the more you know that you can instantaneously feel better, a lot better, and the worse you make the situation for yourself in terms of actually recovering from it, is it like you get further and further away from a point where you'd ever be able to cope with actually going through the full come down? A hundred percent. It's it's that. A hundred percent it's that. And then obviously while you're kind of involved in that scene and using that way with all these other people that are like you just trying to cope with their life and desperation kicks in. And, and you know, there's like, there, there is, there's like a lot of sort of, I, I hate kind of to use the word because it's so blanket, but there's a lot of like traumatic things that happen. And then mm. all of a sudden you're trying to like, you don't know that you're doing this at the time, but you're trying to cover all that stuff up um, and deal with that. And then it just kind of snowballs, but in the wrong direction. You know what I mean? And, and before you know it, you got a real problem on your head. Did it feel like you had more and more reasons to use the more you did it? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I, um, I, you know, and I think like the lower you get, like the, I just, I just really remember without exaggerating, it's the truth. Like the desperation was like intense, you know what I mean? And I just kept like kind of pushing my moral line further and further um, away from where it started. And the more I pushed that moral line, that's the stuff that made me feel the worst, to be honest. Stealing shit from my family, jumping in the window when they'd like kicked me out of the house and stealing their shit. You know, just stuff like that. Just terrible. Stuff that a happy-go-lucky, friendly, nice dude who had a nice background, grew up in a nice home, could never fathom doing. And that, right. there's that disconnect where it's like, how could that ever happen? But that's that drug in particular. Like people could never understand it unless they got hooked on it. But you can explain it anyway. How did you view it? Like was it a, a friend or some, something that you always had with you? Did you like view it? Did you give it an, an identity, your drug addiction, or it wasn't like that? No, I, um, uh, so, and this is the kind of interesting thing as well and why that lived experience person was so important for me early on is that I didn't want to be doing what I was doing for kind of a long time before I worked out how to stop. Right. Um, and 
um, yeah, to be honest with you, I just hated myself for like a lot of the time. Um, and the only thing that would make that go away was using drugs. And the more that I used them, the shorter that moment or that window got of me hating myself. And unfortunately for me, you know, that resulted in kind of suicide attempts, um, uh, you know, like men, uh, like, you know, mental health issues with like psychosis and stuff like that. Um, what yeah, age were you when you were attempting suicide and at that level? 19 and and 20. And I, I had a couple of pretty serious ones where like I ended up in hospital, was really lucky to kind of be revived. Um, yeah. And I was just like, at that point, I was just kind of in runaway train mode. It was just, just I just kind of, if I look back on that time, I wasn't really, to be honest, like I wasn't really thinking. I was just a bit of like a bull in a china shop. I was just kind of, sounds sad, but I was just like, you know, there's this saying like using to live and living to use. Like that's yeah. kind of what my life was like. I was just so there. Was yeah. part of you trying to die from a drug overdose? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So I, I was, um, I, uh, that, that were the two attempts that I had. Um, right. And um, so, so the one, without being <laughs> too graphic. The, yeah. the one that was like super close was um, just stupid. Like I just was in this person's house and I took, um, they, they, they were just, yeah, they were drug users as well. The house was like a chemist and I just kind of took all sorts of pills and then just like slammed down a whole like litre bottle of vodka um, and was like using other drugs on top of it as well. Um and I just like, I can't remember what happened, but yeah, they, they sort of, they left me out in the alley. They freaked out. I think they found me in the morning, foaming at the mouth, choking on my vomit and all that stuff. And they left me in the alley. And then I was just super lucky. Someone walking past saw me and called the ambulance and, and they can save me. You know what did I mean? You, I woke up in hospital three days later. Didn't you actually die? Yeah, I did. I did. So I woke up with like... It's, it's the worst. I woke up with the catheter. Um, my chest was like super sore um, from them hitting me with, I forget what those things are called, the uh, electric things. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the doctor, the doctor called me in the morning um, or called in on me in the morning and just said um, like, what the hell, mate? Like, you know, like, yeah, you nearly died, but we had to revive you, all this sort of stuff. Um, I think they told me they had to revive me three times, once in the ambulance, twice back at the hospital. And the sad thing about that, right, I was just so, I was just so broken that um, as soon as kind of the drugs started wearing off in the hospital, I just was out of there. You know, I, I took all the cords out of me and, and I went straight back to the people that had left me in that alleyway because I knew that they had drugs. Um, and that was... Not like when I say one of the first times, it was one of the real times where it just kind of stopped me from that train wreck mode that I was in. I remember walking away after I'd been there and, and used drugs and scored and whatever straight from the hospital, just thinking, what am I doing? You know, my life's kind of an absolute mess. Um, and it still wasn't six or seven or eight months after that until I got, got some help. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I suppose showing you that, yeah, I, this is actually going to kill me. Yeah, and do I want? Do I actually want that? And coming so close and experiencing that, and I suppose the shame involved in going back to people who like couldn't care less if you were dead, and actually needing them just so that you could put yourself in the same sort of a situation. Because although you you're a recovering addict and in that heights 
in the peak of addiction at that time, you still your brain still functions well enough. You're obviously a smart guy. You're conscious of what you're doing. And yep. then obviously what that does to your self-worth is terrible. And what's the result of that? Generally more drugs to That's dull right. out the pain. So it's such a vicious cycle. That's right. That's uh, right. Uh, was that part of your last bender or? No. So, so that was, um, so that happened. And then, um, I went on for like another six or seven, eight months. And, um, my last bender before I stopped was I, again, yeah, I was just super desperate and I actually stole a whole bunch of money, about seven and a half grand. And I spent it all in a week in an ice bender and all this crazy shit happened. But Basically, a week later, I kind of, I'd been in blackout for a lot of it um, and a mate dropped me off at the train station and I, there were still milk bars at that time, believe it or not. I went into a milk bar and um, yeah, I didn't even have enough in my pocket. I think like Big M's were like five bucks or something at that time and um, I didn't have enough in my pocket to buy like a Big M. I was starving and I was like cold and wet um, and I'd been kicked out of, out of home at that stage with mum. I called her um, and it was weird. She said I could come home because before that she was saying that I couldn't come home. Um, so I, I came home and she opened the door and she just like, she didn't even look look at me. She was just like at that point where she just fucking had enough of me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I went in and yeah, it sounds super cliche, but it's like seriously what happened. I, I think I kind of was like ready for, for help, or I was going to kind of ask for help in some way in that moment. But what happened was I went into the bathroom just to kind of like splash some water on my face. Um, and I was a bit like teary and whatever. And I looked into the mirror. Um, and yeah, it was really weird. Like my life kind of flashed before my eyes. Um, and yeah, I just kind of saw myself for uh, what I was like, you know, that I'd gone from that happy go lucky, nice guy with some good opportunities, um, heaps of friends, all that sort of stuff to, yeah, he's stereotypical kind of chunky. Um, and yeah, I just kind of, it just broke me in that moment. And I, I reached out to mom and asked for help. And, and that's where I do feel super lucky um, and really grateful that, you know, I do have a supportive family and all that stuff because I was a mess. Um, and I see people that don't have those networks now and it just makes it 10 times harder because, you know, my family had like, looked up all the rehabs and stuff like that. I was still kind of just under mum's health insurance. So I could kind of get into a private facility quickly. Um, uh, and yeah, I went for an assessment the next day. Um, and they, uh, I remember it got me over the line. So the next day I was feeling nervous, went into the assessment and the woman said to me, by the end of the thing, my mum like looked like white as a ghost. She said to me, "All right, you can't use ice, but smoke as much pot as you want." Because <laughs> there was still like a week or something before I could get into the treatment center, yeah. um, and I was like, "Fucking awesome, right?" So poor mum was like driving me around mm. all around town um, while I was, you know, getting getting weed and you know a few other things, Fuck. and um, yeah, yeah, and and I managed to get there, but. The funny thing is, right, it's like a pendulum. So even though all that happened, by the time I got to kind of day five, I started to get like wobbly legs and I didn't want to go. You know what I mean? I just said, nah, not fucking going, blah. You know, I was arguing with mum and dad a little bit. 
Um, but there was just kind of something in in me. They took me and I and I went. And yeah, the kind of the rest is history. Really, really lucky that I met that guy. You know, all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, uh, just really lucky. But the the key thing for everyone listening as well is just like again, I was so lucky to have still still a lot of hard work and I did it and all that sort of stuff. But I just think like geez, imagine if I didn't have like a supportive family in that moment that sort of knew how to navigate the health system a little bit. I, I might not have gone to rehab and the, the outcome could have been completely different, you know? So, yeah. So what about those who don't? What hope is there for them? Well, I think things are getting better, right? With I, I, I'm, And it's why I'm so big on um, all this stuff and think it's awesome that you're doing what you're doing. And, and, you know, the more people out there kind of talking on these media platforms, giving information in a relatable way, the better chance people have to kind of increase their health literacy, they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and it's easier to kind of navigate the system. Um, there definitely is like hope and stuff for a lot of people. You you just have to reach out and and call. Um, I, I don't want to make it sound like there there isn't any services, but the, my biggest frustration with um, how we do things um, treatment wise in Australia, right, is access. It's the biggest issue. You know, like it's diff- It's a little bit different in every state, but most states um, it it will take you a little while to first get like the assessment appointment. Um, here in Victoria, everything's centralised. It can take up to three weeks to just get your assessment. Yeah. And then once you get your assessment, then you've got to wait to get into the the rehab centre, which is often like three months plus. Yeah. And then- And, and if, then- you're, if you're in that lifestyle, like, who knows what's going to happen in three months. And it's quite a big deal for someone to get to a point where they accept <laughs> that they need help. And right. if they're under the thumb of a serious drug addiction and you tell them, well, you can get help in three months, it's like, fuck, like, what am I going to do then? A hundred percent. And because there's like not heaps of services or beds or funded positions, you know, all that sort of stuff, then there's like ridiculous rules where people have to stay clean and sober for like 30 days and ring the place every day to show mm. that they're committed. You know, it's just stupid. It's stupid. Um, pisses me off. And that's why it's so important. Um, it's not perfect. I always say that to people. I don't believe in a lot of the stuff anymore, but, you know, the 12-step programs, the smart recovery programs, you know, mental health groups, the helplines, all that stuff is just super important um, to, to just kind of support people and float them through until they can get that intensive support. Um, but the biggest thing is you just got to get on the phone reach out and, and talk to someone 100%. And your business, Real Drug Talk, has online rehab. Yeah, so we actually, um, we've actually shifted a little bit. Like years ago, we tried to do um, like online courses because of that reason, like access was just too hard. Um, and we're just actually building an app for it at the moment, which is pretty cool. But um, we're, we're more just trying to um, now kind of create the conversation and just put out heaps of content, do this stuff, you know, podcasts, all that sort of jazz um, and, and become like a little hub where we can direct people um, to, to the resources. So, um, yeah, if anyone's listening and they want to check it out, there's heaps of like interviews with people that have all different types of experiences with alcohol and drugs and, and a bunch of different options that you can click through and 
hopefully find some help um, in the area that you're in. What's an effective way to educate young people in particular about this that's actually going to be effective and isn't what we've had so far? So, so the biggest ones are, and I reckon, I reckon you kind of get this and I can just tell by you know, the way you've got everything set up. You're a good-looking rooster. You're fit. You're healthy. You know, like it's- Thanks, it's mate. Kind Making of, me blush. <laughs> like it's nothing It's nothing against anyone um, that's doing stuff. Like I love people dedicating their life and helping, but you've got to realize that people, when they're trying to change, the, the things that get people to make a decision and get them over the line to do something different in their life is because they get inspired and they get some hope and. It's usually like a visual cultural experience that happens, you know? So I think Mm -hmm. we need more people like yourself, you know, out there presenting information in a modern format in where people are, you know? So we've got like a TikTok account, right? Yeah. I don't fucking dance or anything, but we've got like- (laughs) That's a shame. I'm sure it'll blow up. (laughs) We just do little like cut down videos of like people um, that are like celebrities and stuff um, that have had experiences with drug and alcohol addiction and stuff like that. And we've got like 20 plus thousand followers in a couple of months. And I've had so many people, younger people reach out to me there because that's where they are. That's the audience. And it's in the format. So I think that, I think- um, I think it does have to be kind of like a cultural conversation. I, I get really excited about what was done in mental health with depression and anxiety. You know, they managed to get the sports people and yeah. I think that's where it started and that flowed on from there. Just kind of hitting people from that cultural aspect. That That's the way that it's going to shift mm. and changing the conversation from if you use drugs, you're not just going to become this full-blown drug addict. <laughs> it's like changing conversations to like, hey, this is probably something you're going to do. Mm. Um, it's actually not cool though. And, you know, your life can be heaps better in this other way. But if you do it, this is a safe way to do it. These are some like things that you got to remember, you know, all that. Stuff. And I think the mental health conversation goes hand in hand with the drug conversation because 100%. that's just a symptom of it. So the more we become mental health literate and talk about these and talk about mental illness in a different light and see it as an illness, just like we do a physical illness and we shift the culture and that becomes something that's not taboo or um, people aren't shamed for expressing their mental health struggles and we just change the way that we operate in how we treat mental health, then I think drugs drugs and addiction then follow that because- 100%. yeah, we start to see that in the same way as well, where it's not like, oh, here's someone who just couldn't be bothered and doesn't want to follow the line and, and be a productive member of society. We see, oh, this is someone who has got a mental illness and a physical addiction and they're in pain and they are human just like the rest of us and they need help and they're not beyond help. And if we can all see it that way, that's when it changes and actually becomes effective. And of course, people are still going to try drugs and do drugs and have good experiences on drugs, which aren't talked about that often. And drugs are never going to be safe. But we might look at it in a way of, well, why are you using drugs? You know, it not rather than oh, drugs are drugs are cool, like drugs are yep. just sick, like they they're good fun. Yeah, sure. But if we have more of an understanding around why people actually use drugs and the fact that mental illness and predisposition to mental illness is connected to drug use and we view drug use more as a yeah an illness rather than something that's 
necessarily cool, then people are probably going to want to do it a bit less or at least view it differently. But the more we outlaw it and make it like this hardcore thing, the cooler it is, the more people want to do it, the less people associate it with illness and the more people just associate it with crime, thus subcultures, thus identity, thus young people in particular wanting to be seen to be cool and be hardcore and be sick. And then (laughs) that's, that's not good. If we don't shift that, nothing's changing. A hundred percent. And I think you're exactly right. Um, And then I also think there has to be the conversation and it's probably the same with mental health as well for people that are in a spot and want to kind of change things, you know, like, like life, like there is a solution, like there is a solution and your life can be like a million times better. You know what I mean? And I think that's something that I'm always keen about as well is, is trying to help people to focus like the positives of their change process and the progressions that they've had off it and how much better things are because everybody that I talk to have these kind of amazing lives. They've kind of channeled their like obsession and compulsion and addictive nature into like acting and business or art or fitness or whatever it is. You've got to replace it with something so much more worthwhile and find meaning and lack of meaning is going to lead to abuse of those sorts of things because we're trying to fill that gap and you can't just stop doing something and then not have anything to look forward to in your life. You need to find some purpose, but that's a harder thing to do than smoking a joint or sticking a needle in your arm, obviously. That's right. So have you had a beer yet? No. So uh, I um, so that's what happened to me was someone told me when I was um, uh, first going through rehab, I was really not keen. I thought I was just there to get off like drugs. And then they told me that I couldn't drink alcohol for a, for a while as well. And I nearly fell off my chair and I was like, no fucking way, right? They just said, just commit to like a year. And after you do a year, then you can make your mind up on what you want to do. Um, so I did that. And then once I got to a year, I just decided that, you know, my life was better without it. And, uh, I haven't, I haven't drank since. So been over like 10 years now since I've done any drugs or alcohol, but in saying that, um, I'm a firm believer that, you know, if people do want that in their life, they can, um, it's just about forming a different relationship to it and acknowledging where you're at at the time and working through that stuff. Um, but, a lot of people that I work with as well kind of end up just going, no, my life's heaps better. <laughs> Without it, I'm not going to do it. So, yeah. Totally. And I'm sure everyone's happy to have the big cuddly bear back, mate. And That's you, right. <laughs> you play a much better part in everyone's life in, in this rendition of yourself. So I'm glad, right. glad you came back to earth eventually. And I love your, your story and what you do now and the way you deliver it. It's actually realistic, makes young people actually want to listen to it because it's not just something that the government has devised and thrown at them that don't understand it has to (laughs) come from people who've actually lived it so respect for doing what you're doing and sticking at it for so long and making such a difference thanks mate i appreciate it that's it for this episode if you're getting some value out of the show please help us out with a quick rate and review on apple podcasts all our podcasts are recorded in video so follow young blood men's health matters on instagram and facebook and subscribe to our youtube channel young blood media to get the full picture And please leave us a comment if anything resonates. We love hearing from you. You're more than welcome to join our inner circle by signing up for our e-news through our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au. And most importantly, please share this podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. Until next time, this is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission.